Well, I was starting to think we were in a drought, but that's clearly over. We've been getting poured on. Storms are rolling through. We're ending Friday with a lot of thunderbolts. And that's what we expect to have on this episode of This Week in the CLE. Lots of news to talk about. It's the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Chris Warnowski, Jane Cahoon, and Laura Johnston. We are at Friday at last, and I am sure you're all happy about that. Woohoo! Very I mean, happy. I- I'm working the weekend, so I just... Oh, I'm so sorry, Chris. Grumble, 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 grumble. Let's get to it. Why is Ohio Governor Mike DeWine setting specific rules for how schools must report students who have the coronavirus? Jane Cahoon, the juxtaposition of this announcement with a column that our columnist Layla Tassi published this week is kind of interesting because <laughs> she has a whole column about how screwed up it is that there are districts that were planning not to do that. But now Mike DeWine has come forward and saying, no, 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 I'm ordering that. What's 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 he say the reason for this is and how might it work? Right. Well, well, he signaled he told us he was going to do this on, on Tuesday. And then on Thursday, he did announce this forthcoming order. The order isn't ready yet and hasn't been signed, but I think he wanted to get the information out there to give school districts to prepare. So as you know, they've given school districts a lot of leeway to make their own decisions about reopening, but DeWine really felt it was necessary to have a uniform reporting system so that the public could be aware and that parents were kept informed on this. So the order is going to have information like well, the schools have to create a mechanism for parents to report cases like like maybe using the phone line that they call in, you know, when their kid's going to miss school. And then within 48 hours of learning of a coronavirus case in a student or staff member, the district is going to have to contact the local health department and make the, make this information publicly available in some way, which they could do through a press release or posting it on their website. And then they're supposed to notify parents in writing about the case and include as much information as possible without compromising private health information. So they didn't really say specifically what information is going to have to be included in those notifications. We'll find out, you know, when the order comes out. But then the local health department has to report the case to the state health department, and then they're going to post it and they're going to have like an update every Wednesday in including cumulative case data. So we should be able to look at that and see, you know, how many cases are coming out of schools. What I liked when I heard the governor talking about this was his focus on the parents, like parents deserve to know this, which was not what Layla was here. I talked to Layla before she wrote the column and it's bizarre that you could be a school superintendent and not understand the anxiety of parents. I mean, Layla, (coughs) conveys that anxiety quite well. So was Laura over the conversations we've had. But the superintendents were thinking purely inwardly instead of outwardly. The governor, at least, was focused on the the parents have a right to know. If your kid is going into a classroom (laughs) where there's coronavirus, you kind of should know, right? It seems like it's a no-brainer. What is wrong with the school districts that we're planning not to do this? I mean, he uses as an example, like if your your kid's class has an outbreak of head lice, of course, they have to let you know about that because that spreads and you've got to do something about it. It, it, it. From the beginning of the pandemic, there has been an alarming number of times where the people who are paid 
by the public to do the public's business have decided not to tell us the, about the information they have. If you remember at the beginning of the pandemic, mm-hmm. the county health boards were like, you know, we're not telling you that. That's that's a violation of privacy. And we we're basically asking for raw numbers. How many people in a zip code have it? Oh, that will identify them. <laughs> <laughs> and Who's then we had those people, people, those kids like riding the bus where other people got infected and the yeah. information was really hard to come by for that, too. But but I think that brings up a really good point. You know, I mean, here we're asking. we've been asking for contact tracing information from the state for weeks now, and their logic behind it was, well, our reporting systems are antiquated and it's difficult to export that information. Like, like so now we're creating another system that is going to require multiple agencies report, <laughs> reporting other things to multiple agencies and. And at the end of the day, it's 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 you got to wonder how useful or transparent or readily available this information is going to be to the public. I mean, that you know, for all of the good that we've done, we've had, you know, there there are still a lot of places in the in the data gathering that that the, the state is just com- being completely just. I mean, they're just blocking access to information that I think would be useful to a lot of people. And 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 so I, I have to wonder if this this system is going to be the same, have the same problem. Well, you know, keep in mind, they did this with the nursing homes. And even though they're really slow to get that data up every Wednesday, we don't usually get it till like late at night on Wednesday. (laughs) We do get information about the number of nursing home deaths and cases among nursing home staff and residents. It's kind of separate from, God forbid that they enter it into that antiquated system and try to analyze wait, 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 stop, don't stop, get stop. chris started here I'm, I'm, not, no, I'm not giving them that that we look we're still fighting for that they're still trying not to give it to us and and what we now know is it's not in a spreadsheet they have it in a database and they thought we were stupid and didn't remember how databases work because it's way back in 2001 well we were doing a lot of data journalism back then it's real simple They can export certain fields without violating privacy. They're still ducking it. Here's my problem with it, though. They've turned this into a journalist versus government thing. Like they have thousands of cases, thousands of records now where they've traced the virus. They know how it spread. And instead of fighting with us about what we're entitled to have, you would think as a public service to the people of Ohio, they would figure this out. They have the data, export it, figure out a way to mine it so that you can tell Ohioans, hey, this is how it's spreading. We're seeing all these super spreader events across the country. Have we had them in Ohio? Who the hell knows? Because they have the data and they won't export it. Look, it's not, this sounds like a fine point, but this should not be journalists versus the government. This should be Mike DeWine and his health department want to help the people who who elected them and put them into place. They have the data. Figure it out. So I'm off my soapbox. (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to This Week in the CLE. If Valerie McCall, a top member of Mayor Frank Jackson's staff, was illegally paid $57,000 for being an RTA board member, as the state auditor now says, why doesn't she have to pay it back? Laura Johnson, this is this has been a wacky case from the beginning because of the way she got this money. But the fact that she doesn't have to pay it back, even though it's now being classified as illegal, is a wacky one. So please take us through this tortured path. Yeah, this is really interesting. So Valerie McCall was paid $57,000 over 12 years. 
Um, but Auditor Keith Faber is ordering Joe Calabrese, who served at the time as the board secretary and treasurer, his bonding company, and then the board president, George Dixon, to repay the money because they authorized the illegal payments. So McCall was an appointed as an employee of the city. She was already receiving money from the city for her job. So Faber's saying she's getting double payment and the law did not allow for her to get a salary. The weird thing was, though, when she first joined the board, she declined the money. Then there came a point where she said, "Okay, I want the money and I I want all my retroactive money. So they wrote her a, a big check and started paying her her what her statement was later was, hey, look, I didn't want it. I didn't I didn't ask for it. But the board worried that all the other board members were being paid, Mm -hmm. wanted uniformity. Now, well, when we should point out the RTA reassessed a couple of years ago and stopped paying her. So this thing has been tortured. But but I still I, I find it a little bit hard to fathom why she doesn't have to pay it back. If you think back to uh, John Hay, the guy at Cuyahoga County who uh, got the signing bonus to get a job, and it and it, and that's and he he got this bonus as part of his agreement to come work here. But when the auditor found that that was inappropriate, he had to pay the money back, or at least he did until there was some wackiness later. But there's no no talk of her paying it back. She just gets the extra fifty seven k, right? It is kind of crazy, and especially since this, she didn't even ask for the money till eight years in. So they just you know, wrote her a check in 2014 for like $35,000. So yeah, I I don't know why they haven't said, you know, this wasn't your fault, but you're going to have to repay it. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a strange one. There wasn't a lot of statement out of city hall about it, but uh, Faber finally came through. This one's finally uh, resolved. We'll see though, if they ever get the money back because the two people they want the money from are long gone. And Dixon already found that he has to repay $132,000 in connection with pleading guilty to theft in office in December, 2019. So he's got a, a bill now. They do have bonding companies, though, that would be responsible. So maybe the RTA gets the money from the bonding companies and the bonding companies go after Dixon and Calabrese. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What are the Cleveland Clinic, University Hospitals, and Metro Health thinking in not immediately testing their staff members who are exposed to the coronavirus or quarantining them until they are tested? Chris Ranowski, this one is kind of a mind boggler. There's long-standing CDC recommendations for healthcare workers that they get tested if they're exposed. They are treating the most vulnerable populations that could be infected by the coronavirus. So this was kind of a shocker that our storied health systems are not doing it. Right. So basically what the CDC says is, um, you know, healthcare personnel who have close contact with people who have tested positive for COVID-19 should be tested as part of a community contact tracing. And the guidance from the CDC says that testing can be considered for doctors, nurses, and other healthcare workers who have uh, COVID-19 symptoms or are asymptomatic and known that they've been exposed to the illness. So, you know, during the course of their job or whatever. Uh, what we found is that the Cleveland Clinic, Metro Health Systems, and University Hospitals healthcare workers uh, who are exposed to COVID-positive people are not automatically quarantined or tested. So, you know, we we sort of we we looked at every every one of the systems and and to see what their sort of protocol is. So, uh, you know, if you want, I can go through all of them. The clinics. It, well, it, but, we, or, but go ahead. More, 
I'm more interested. Why? I mean, is anybody <laughs> explaining why would you do this? Because you seem like you're endangering your staff, which these are heroic people that are treating coronavirus, but you also might be endangering the public. So did anybody explain this? Uh, not really. <laughs> I mean, there's no real good justification for it. They, you know, they don't say we're doing this because there's a, a shortage of tests or, you know, that we, we feel it's overkill and, and unnecessary. I mean, there's really, you know, there's really none of that. I mean, you're, you know, you, it's a lot of, a lot of PR statements. Uh, you know, I mean, I can read to you what, what, uh, but, but Metro are, Health said it's, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, there's really no, I mean, they give no real logic for it whatsoever. But they're, and they're also punishing the workers who choose to go get a test on their own, right? If you get a test on your own, you have to stop working, use your vacation time until the results come back. I don't understand the logic of that either. Well, I mean, the logic is maybe, you know, there, the test is what triggers the need for the quarantine. So if you don't test somebody, they don't have to quarantine and they can keep working. And, you know, you have bodies in the hospital doing the work, you know, right, but think, think about the logic of that. Think, think about what the logic, what you just said. I mean, there is no logic. I get exposed and I don't get tested and I can keep working with everybody. Yeah. I get exposed. And for my own personal edification, I get tested. So, so we're going to know for sure whether I have it, I have to stop working. That makes no sense. Right. I mean, you got to think about it. I mean, you know, maybe part of their reasoning is, you know, nobody on earth has more PPE and, and protective gear as these medical professionals. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I, again, they, you know, it's, it's Although, not like they've let us in to see what they're doing. And we're but, hearing <laughs> from people every other day who work in hospitals, nurses and doctors and, and what have you. We got another one overnight that, that about university hospitals that they're not providing the, the necessary masks or they have to use the same surgical mask for seven days. The, the folks are all afraid to go on the record because they think the venal hospital systems will fire them. But, man, I mean, Laura, you've seen a bunch of these, too, Laura Johnston. We hear from a lot of people that are begging us to to put a spotlight on how little equipment they're getting and what the treatment is. So I, I'm not sure. It sounds like, Chris, the real reason for this is they don't want to have reduction of staff. And so by not testing, they don't have to reduce their staff pending the quarantine. Yeah. I mean, look, I I would walk out of a hospital if I found out my doctor didn't wash his hands. So, I, you know, this does not give me a lot of faith in any of these medical systems. But <laughs> And look, I, get, I understand why people are afraid to talk about this. I mean, the Cleveland Clinic managed to spring a surprise presidential debate on this, the whole city. So, <laughs> so, so, I, you know, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm afraid of that kind of power. That's that's a that's some power. Yeah. There. So, no, I'm I, I ingest. But um, but, you know, if. Look, if people want to talk to us, please talk to us. We would yeah. love to tell that story. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. What does Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose have to say about the second lawsuit filed against him for limiting the number of ballot drop boxes each county can have? Jane Cahoon, this one's going to take us down to the wire of early voting, I suspect, as we always end up at the wire of voting in presidential years in Ohio. What's he saying? Why Is he still... Absolute. I'm not going to allow more drop boxes. What what is his his response was pretty much the identical statement his spokeswoman gave to the first lawsuit that was filed by the Democrats about this in state court. This new lawsuit is a is a federal lawsuit that's 
alleging people's constitutional rights were, were violated. But he basically says that he needs something spelled out in the law to be able to do this. And he, he welcomes that. And that's something that's really disputed by the, the voter rights groups. They say there, there's nothing in the law that prevents him from doing this. He's banking everything on this effort to spend money on prepaid postage for ballots that that he's trying to go through the controlling board to get that money released. And he, he kind of suggests that that could accomplish the same thing because people will be able to drop their ballot in the closest mailbox. But of course, you know, the people in this lawsuit are are very afraid that the Postal Service isn't going to be able to handle their ballots. They say the president has undermined their faith in the system and they say they want to use a drop box, but there's only one and it's downtown and this presents a real hardship to their to their vote. The the originally he sought an opinion from Dave Yost, the attorney general, on whether he could allow more. He ended up making an announcement without waiting for that. But but is it possible that Dave Yost, the attorney general, will come through with an opinion saying yay or nay to the idea of more drop boxes? Well, he might come through with an opinion, but now, it, but he's not telling us uh, anything because now that there are lawsuits, it's it's like an attorney-client privilege thing. So he wouldn't. We oh. asked him after he said after this opinion was requested. It's like, hey, give us the opinion. What is your opinion on this? And they said, no, we can't because you know there's going to be litigation. Although, if he came out with an opinion that said. There, there's nothing in the law that prevents the Secretary of State from allowing multiple drop boxes. It would make the whole thing moot. He could just allow multiple drop boxes instead of policy, um, and it would make the lawsuits go away. Wouldn't it be nice if government worked that way? <laughs> <laughs> it's this week in the CLE. With so many people wearing masks the wrong way, not covering their noses, what public service can we do here today by talking about this trend? Laura Johnston, this one it kind of boggles the mind. You have people that are not opposed to wearing masks, but they're not covering their noses, which is not so dangerous to others as it is to themselves, right? Yeah. Like the main point of this is you need for a mask to work to cover your nose and your mouth. I loved the snarky tone of Julie Washington's story. She lists all the wrong ways that people wear masks, along with the names of the problems that are apparently like trending on Twitter. Um, like a chin strap is uh, p- people that pull their mask to their chin. The sniffer is when your nose is exposed. The speakeasy is your mask off your nose and your mouth. The headbanger is your mask worn like a headband. So people are noting these. They're they're making light of it, but it is a serious situation. Um, there's a University of North Carolina study that suggests the coronavirus first establishes in a nasal cavity and then it aspirates to the lungs, where obviously it can cause major damage. So they're saying the nose is the initial site from the infection. So really, you need to cover it. But the, but the, again, you know, in the beginning, they said wear a mask to protect others because it stops you from spewing whatever you have out into the air. Mm-hmm. But, by, you know, so if you wear it over your mouth, you're probably still doing a lot of that. But you are exposing yourself. It's an odd one, because if you're going to the trouble of wearing the mask, what is it about people not putting it on their noses? I Is it a like a psychological thing where they just don't think they can breathe with the mask over their nose? I think a lot of it is just it's uncomfortable and they don't fit right, right? Like, especially if it's too big or it's too small or something, it slips down over your nose. That's the part that's going to come off the first. And people, you know, aren't that careful about it. 
Well, I, if you're listening to this, consider covering your nose because otherwise <laughs> you're exposing yourself to the coronavirus. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Rich Exner took a look this week at the frustrations people in Ohio have over problems with their unemployment payments and their stimulus checks, and that story quickly rocketed to number one on our site. It was very, very popular. Chris Ranowski, what did Rich Exner say? Well, he, you know, we we've been getting a steady stream of emails, uh, basically since the unemployment numbers went up about people who are having problems getting access to unemployment. They're worried about unemployment running out. Uh, their stimulus checks haven't come. And, you know, there, there has been a lot of frustration over these systems. So, you know, Rich has, Rich has started sort of focusing on, you know, answering some of these questions and trying to allay at least some of the concerns people have. For example, like uh, a, a woman wrote him and was wondering, you know, does the governor have to get approved through FEMA before we get unemployment money? And she was explaining that she had worked for the same company since 2010. They were a buffet and she doesn't think they're ever going to open again. And she's worried because she's 50 years old. And she said, it's going to be really hard for me to find a job at this age. Her quote was, I don't want to lose everything I've worked all my life for, especially when it's out of my control. And so he found out, you know, that that Ohio did need approval from FEMA to to, you know, get its share to start giving uh additional $300 a week payments. The state submitted its application Monday uh, after about half the states in the country got approved and FEMA acted quickly, uh, announcing that Ohio had been approved uh, on Wednesday night. Um, the federal government set aside $44 billion in tax dollars for the program. And if Ohio had not bought into the program, we, we that money just would have ended up going to other states. So you know, so the good news is, is the states are approved and, and FEMA will dole out enough money to cover three weeks worth of checks. After that, you know, more money will be provided as it's available. So, you know, people people are going to start seeing some uh, uh, some relief. I mean, I don't think it's going to be, you know, enough for some people who might be at risk of losing their homes or, or being evicted uh, from landlords. But, you right, know, right. I, I think it's something. Let me ask you to take a minute to speculate. When when Rich's story went up, it rocketed to the top. When we write about eviction, it rockets to the top. Anything about another round of stimulus rockets to the top. What, are you interpreting that as that there's desperation out there, that there are a lot of people that really need this help? I think, you know, I mean, and, and Jane can maybe attest to this too, because she and I both had a really hard time getting through to get our unemployment when we went on furlough. So when we're, you know, we're a lot of times we're the, we're the people that actually respond to them. You know, I, I mean, it sounds crazy, but it's so difficult to get through and to find a human being to talk to about your concerns. And, and, you know, it gets frustrating and it's, it's terrifying for a lot of people. And I think people are, are desperate for straight answers. And as we've talked about on this podcast before, you know, Sometimes with the government, it's difficult to get a straight answer. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, no, I mean, you laugh, but I mean, these systems were, I mean, these systems were designed to not work, you know, that, that, you know, you've had governments that have just thumbed their nose at the unemployed people of, of this country claiming they don't want to work and they don't deserve this and that. And, 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 and really, you know, it, it's, it's no surprise that these systems that they've undercut for decades just don't work when time comes that everybody needs them. You know, yeah, well, I, 
I think it, we need to to do some more content on the subject. I still don't have my money, by the way. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So you know, it's is that right? You you still don't have your money? That is correct. Wow, Chris, did you get yours? I got mine very like like after after almost two weeks of getting up at six o'clock in the morning and trying to get to the front of the line of the customer service line. I finally got through after being hung up on by a customer service person. Uh, yeah, it took about a week after I got through and and I finally got paid. So I wonder uh, if John Houston doesn't like what Jane says about him. On the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Did you make fun of his long hair? Is that yeah. what happened? Yeah, he's gotten very long. <laughs> I All right, you're, you're the one who's made fun of him. I stood <laughs> out of that. Right. But, and he's punishing you for that. It, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is evidence continuing to grow that the Ohio coronavirus mask mandate is working? Jen Cahoon, Rich Exner posted a story this very morning that has some pretty dramatic trends showing. What are they? Well, Rich did a data dive into, he looked at this by date of onset. And because that's a better indication, you know, because the, as opposed to when the cases were actually reported, because there can be a lag. But he he lined that up with the time period of the mask mandate, which was July 23rd. Anyway, he found that the onset of new cases appears to be down more than a third since this order was issued. And, um, you know, really dramatically so in, in certain counties. He's got a whole county-by-county county breakdown of this uh, with his story that you can look at, but case counts fell in nearly every county where there where there were more than a handful of cases to you know to actually offer trends on this. So, so, so this settles the debate then, and we will no longer have an anti-mask faction in the country, right? Because oh, of course, of course. course. <laughs> everybody yeah. will wear the mask. They'll cover their noses, and we'll be we'll be in, we'll be off to the races of beating back the coronavirus, right? I mean, weren't all the Republicans at the uh, at Donald Trump's uh, final night keynote speech at the convention wearing masks yeah, on the White a House? A lot of people found that really upsetting. Really yeah. upsetting. None of them were wearing masks. It was a shock to be shoulder to shoulder. We've had so many super spreader events because people get together and they don't wear masks. This is really good evidence, though, that for the right. people that are wearing the masks and doing their part, you actually are helping reduce the trend. So it's good stuff by uh, by Rich Exner, but you have to be a paying subscriber to either Cleveland.com or The Plain Dealer to read it. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why aren't some Cleveland coronavirus experts that troubled by the news that three people in the world have been reinfected by the coronavirus just months after recovering from it? Laura Johnson, we localized the uh, international story because we now have conclusive proof that people have been reinfected. But but the people we talked to didn't think it was that big a deal. No, they didn't. And the idea is that we're talking about three cases. Reinfection is very rare and we're talking about millions of, of you know cases probably around the world. So researchers really aren't certain if most people who recover from COVID-19 are protected from getting a second round of the illness, how long those antibodies against the coronavirus last or how much protection they offer against a second infection. I mean, that's it's just adding to all the unknowns about the coronavirus. And it, it raises another question about whether a vaccine is really practical and if we'll ever reach herd immunity if if people can get it again. What surprised me about what they said in the story was that it's only three. We don't have a lot. That's heartening. But this is a virus that just hit the stage 
less than a year ago. And so, I mean, there was a, there've been a lot of people saying, look, coronaviruses as a class, you don't have long-term immunity. That's what the common cold is. That's why you can get it every year. So, so the fact that you've had real reinfections, I thought was pretty alarming, but so I was very surprised to see people who know a lot more about these things than I do saying, yeah, 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 but we're not seeing that many. And so that's good news. Maybe, maybe this lasts longer than we think. And as you said, it's all a big unknown. And someday we'll actually know how this virus works <laughs> and maybe how, how to defeat it. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. That wraps up another week of This Week in the CLE, guys. So I'm sure you are ready to head into the weekend. Uh, you, you miss talking to each other, I'm sure, on Saturdays and Sundays. Though, right? <laughs> we call each other and we just do it without you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We talk about you. <laughs> I'm sure in very friendly terms. Well, I hope you have a good weekend. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. We'll be back with another discussion on Monday. <laughs>